I want to begin by telling a couple micro stories. Then I want to uh, read a section of the story of God, or actually have ABG read a story in First uh, Corinthians chapter one, and then I want to tell you an epic story. So we live in a culture where the term influencers gets thrown around a lot. And uh, people like become influencers. They even have like tools to portray themselves as looking a certain way or having a certain income level. Like this is my jet when really it's just a background that I pasted myself on. In order to show that we, because we have won at the game of life, whether it's through uh, beauty, whether it's through wealth, whether it's from outlandishness, but those influencers then get ad revenue and get paid because whatever they talk about helps other influential rich people get richer. And there is even, this has been, this is uh, not just a new thing. It's just been put on steroids because of Instagram and everything. But I remember this as a very young person. And I even remember seeing it in churches. There's this idea you influence the influencers to influence your community. And it kind of stunk for me because I was like an outcast geek. You know, I'm like, oh, great. So I'm not anyone's target for ministry because I'm, you know, kind of a loser. But then I would read the Bible and I'd be, oh, cool. The Bible says a different story. But why are they doing this? And there were whole ministry models about, like, trying to get certain people landed into this to somehow help a proselytization effort. But once again... Going to the entire story of God, we see what we, theologians and we call the upside-down kingdom. And uh, I love studying history, too. A big reason I like studying history is because it helps me not to be an atheist. Um, I, you know, as many of you know, I struggle with clinical depression, uh, kind of uh, through biology and circumstances. It's been a thing with me as long as I can remember. I can remember being depressed in preschool, all right? And uh, when that meets faith, one of the things that depresses me most is, and many of you, is people doing things that are fighting against the efforts of Jesus and his people in the name of Jesus. And they get depressed a lot because, frankly, bad news gets more hits than good news, and human brains have to have 10 things to remember one good, 10 good things to remember one good thing and one bad thing to remember the rest of their life. That's because we're meant to protect ourselves from predators and having gratitude doesn't really do that for wild animals. And as we become more like Jesus, we grow in thanksgiving. So one thing I've learned is history is told by whoever was in charge or whoever won a war or whoever uh, created this invention that made all this money. And Oftentimes, entire histories are erased by the next powerful person because they don't like the previous powerful person. So history, when we read uh, the history of the church, and whenever people talk about, if you go to OSU or any good school, they will tell you about all the atrocities committed in the name of Jesus in history. And I grew up in a Christian environment where we skipped over those. And I made it my focus, and I actually did coursework studying the Crusades, etc., to kind of get the heart of what was really happening. It was very depressing. Praise God for Google and archives, and praise God for academic libraries that allowed me to fake or allowed me to get 
uh, library card even though I just got a bachelor's degree and I'm not like a, a visiting professor. They're really cool. Especially, uh, thank you, uh, National Archives of Scotland for giving me a membership card. But I want to tell you what history really is and what's recorded. Recorded history is recorded history of influencers. The kingdom of God is, grows the most in anonymity. What makes the Bible unique? There would who knows about the book of Ruth? The book of Ruth. How was Ruth related to King David? Anyone know? Great-grandmother. Ruth was the great-grandmother of King David. And David was the great-grandpa times removed from Jesus. Uh, Ruth was a poor widow, ethnic minority, who, uh, found, who basically, through trauma after trauma, found new life. And it's one of the most intimate stories in the scriptures. I challenge anyone to find a story that, that in the ancient world that stars someone that poor, that insignificant, or even if they are the you know, genetic forebearer, X times removed from an influencer, do we know the great-grandparents of influencers today? But the Bible spends more time on Ruth, yet there are countless kings of Israel that only get mentioned in three verses. So we have royalty that gets skipped over, and grandma who gets magnified in one of the most beautiful books of the Old Testament. So how the people of God tell and live stories is the insignificant is what teaches us how to live our faith. And uh, if you were going to choose between Ruth or King David and how to follow Jesus, you would have to skip 90% of what's reported about David. And the 10% left is awesome. And you discern what's good and bad by what is like Jesus. But Ruth is like, wow, 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 wow. So that is how Jesus' people tell stories. Well, now with the advent of, I can from my phone do research I am obsessed with the story behind the story behind the story. Like we, have, we know these great heroes like Nelson Mandela or uh, Martin Luther King or uh, you know, whatever your heroes are, but we, not often do we know about their grandparents. Not often do we know about the supportive community they grew up in. But I've been, uh, there is so much historical work to be done, especially for the church, to discover the secret stories, which now there's literally unread volumes of letters and journals in archives around the world that tell you the story behind the story. So I'm just going to give you, I'm going to give a little blitzkrieg of a couple high points of stories, then I'm going to tell you, we're going to read the scripture, and then I'm going to tell you an epic story that I got to uh, witness. So... Um, the idea of like institutional health care, not pay to play, but institutional free health care freely offered in a combined context. We, uh, they were called hospices. We now call them hospitals. Started when the early church, in order to demonstrate God's love for their enemies, they would go to a battlefield, set up and dress the wounds of both sides. 
And generally, they've received some ill treatment from both sides of every deal because the church uh, didn't play when it came to the violence thing. But they suffered and they dressed the wounds of their enemy to the point where there was... The only way we know about this, really, by the way, and or the only way I know about this, there may be documents I haven't read yet, is because opponents of Christians or opponents of Christianity complained that they're loving their enemies and dressing the wounds of people that persecute them is like the ultimate propaganda. We can't stop it. So uh, who here has benefited from like institutionalized health care, not just like a clinic that if you're a millionaire you can go to? Anyone? Anyone ever had a baby? Anyone ever? Okay. Um, well, that's our legacy. Um, another thing is, uh, so far, I'm not going to speak, every abolitionist movement I've ever studied Insti you know, not individuals that set slaves free, but people who combated the institution of slavery began in a spiritual revival. Literally became when people read the Sermon on the Mount, teachings of Jesus said, listen, we're not great theologians, but whatever it seems that Jesus would want us to do after we read this and listen to the Holy Spirit, we're just going to do it. And uh, that, ab I preached once on Granville Sharp who was the grandfather of abolitionism and probably a hundred other things. I won't go into that. Read the Wikipedia. No one knows about him, and I don't know too much about, especially people don't know about his brother who supported him. We don't tell him. We know Wilberforce. If you're really astute, you know about John Newton and William Wilberforce. Most people don't know about that. But we've encountered a lot of people who in the name of Jesus have said that sin is a matter of a few bad apples, not a matter of organized systems of evil. But our forebears in Jesus systemically responded to evil and changed the world to the point where we often take it for granted. To the point we often take it for granted. So when I get depressed, when I see you know, press releases and uh, uh, viral videos of pastors opposing something that I just love. I think, you know, you're opposing an institution that countless Christians who did get interviewed by the press combined together to change the world. Um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I grew up hearing that if they ever ended apartheid in South Africa, there would be blowback that would end up blood in the streets. Apartheid's bad, but what follows is going to be horrible, hard too. Um, who here knows any of the first 20 people to build the architecture and uh, ideology of a truth and reconciliation commission? Any like the first 20 or 30 people? Who's heard of the truth and reconciliation? Uh, okay. Well, the first people anyone would have heard about the truth and reconciliation, first it would have been Mandela, and then it would be Desmond Tutu. But the fact is... This was something that churches rebelling against the governing type churches were practicing. And they lifted it from the scriptural tradition of repentance. And what that did is it not only led to there not being this violent revolution or blowback that was predicted, but it led to people being reconciled, loving one another, and enemy love that has not been really seen in our history but in a few occasions. And then Rwanda, where you had genocide, one tribe against the other against the other, 
Truth and reconciliation went there, but that's our heritage. That's just people reading the Bible. Now, some people say we talk about this stuff, oh, it's political. No, what it is is you read the Bible and say, okay, God, I've been eating your story. Let's do some improv acting. What would Jesus do in this context? How would Jesus call his church in this context? And the Holy Spirit says, oh, great, you're opening your heart. I'm going to show you how to do it. And the church does it, and then it changes the whole world, and no one even remembers the story of how it started. We remember heroes, but the insignificant change the world. Um, I'm going to have to... Yes, skip forward. Okay, my mom. Uh, my mom was so introverted. We, I don't know what happened with me. It might have been like... Uh, I don't know. I don't know what happened to me. But literally, she had social anxiety and spent a significant period of her life on the couch, super depressed. On the other side of it, she also prayed for me all the time. And she was always involved in one-on-one -on -one ministry, serving people that were otherwise invisible to other people. And I could kind of look to almost every good thing in my life as being an answer to her prayer. She died in 94. Um, her funeral was epic. This person that I would, I would actually was worried about her being introverted. So we would go to Big Bear or Kroger, and I would run ahead of her in the grocery aisle, introduce myself to every single person that was shopping, get to know their name, and then when my mom would move the cart towards them, say, hey, this is my mom. She's really shy, but you guys should talk. My mom, this is, you know. And I did that all the time until she stopped letting me go shopping with her. It was that knocking down a big display, because I insisted they were shadowproof, and they weren't. Anyway. My mom, like, basically, my, I had behavioral difficulties and learning disabilities. My mom put me in a nursery school, and the, they loved her. The people loved her. And eventually, her just quietly learning about Jesus and sharing it with a couple of people ended up to our church doubling in size and continuing to go and having, like, five-generation influences here. But my mom could, had a hard time going into certain public contexts. You know, no one, everyone knows who, like, maybe uh, whatever mega church person covered up this thing or this televangelist that uh, goes on, whatever. Everyone knows about them. No one's going to know about my mom, right? But who changed the world? Who, think of every systemic engagement of poverty that has worked and showed people the love of Jesus. And I guarantee... It would take so much work to know who influenced the influencers. My passion lately, for the last three years, has been studying the origins of relational-based engagement with the poor, the institution of social work, as we know it, in the web of all these connections that involved uh, Christian community and all these people that only now is coming to light as letters are discovered, that invented social work in the idea of, instead of the Charles Dickensian view of the workhouses and everything, what changed in England where everyone thought certain provisions were just normal, even atheists thought they were normal, when did Christians say we, we need to move in this direction? That's one thing I've been geeking out. Why? Because it gives me hope for us because we are nobody in the world's eyes. And I've seen so much good happen. So I want to want ABG to come up here and read a scripture and then I want to tell you an epic story, all right? Uh, Lord Jesus, I pray your uh, presence over these scriptures. Thank you for my buddy reading for me. And we are going to uh, just hopefully do justice to uh, all the cool things you've offered us. All right, buddy. Hey, everyone. My name is ABG. Morning. Um, this was last minute this morning. So It always is. Yeah. 
Uh, and honestly, I was a little, not worried, but I am somewhat of a shy guy too, so I think uh, trying to follow, I think what uh, Jeff wants to, to support him in his, uh, minist- in his ministry was really important to me. Um, so he wanted me to read 1 Corinthians 1, this is from the message, and it says, uh, it's verse uh, 26 31. It says, take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you, not many influential, not many from high society or families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chose those nobodies to expose the hollow and pretensions of the somebodies? That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Uh, Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate with a fresh start, comes from God by way of Jesus Christ. That's why we have a saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. And uh, I do want to share, so as I I got this text during worship, and um, I was thinking like, I don't I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> I don't know if I, I think I just want to focus on being with God and worshiping God. And, um, but that made me think that uh, sometimes you just hear a word through someone that, that God wants you to be involved in. And uh, I think for me personally, sometimes I, I want to focus too much on God to really miss out on how he's moving me in the community. So honestly, it's a, it's a matter of trying to really dig in and be present. And then you'll see that God is already using you um, in your community, support, supporting those around you, and, uh, and as Jeff has been saying, supporting your families. So uh, God bless, and I hope that this uh, verse has helped you as I've now just experienced a little bit today for myself. So thank you, Jeff, for asking, and there you go. <laughs> All right, so 1994, early summer of 94, um, I wasn't attending a church anywhere. I had never even been to like the, vine- the Vineyard Church. I didn't really know anything about it other than like third hand. But I uh, was kind of lonely. Some things were going on. And I, uh, I went to school out of town, so I wasn't really super connected to Columbus. And I went to a, a coffee shop called the Cappuccino Cafe in Westerville. Anyone remember that? Very, I mean, this is old school 94, all right? And they would do music there and have coffee. And uh, I uh, would go up there. And the thing is, it was really crammed. It had upstairs a little music venue and all these little bistro tables. And you had to sit with people and all crowd around the table. I didn't know anyone. Well, based on my upbringing, I generally like gravitated towards people that didn't scare me or people that seemed like they were intimidated too or something, or just they looked lonely because I always would think of my mom when I saw someone that was really quiet or lonely or just on the outskirts. I'd always think about the person I love most in the world at that time. You know, um, this is before we even knew her cancer had come back. And I saw my friend Liz, my friend Liz Riggs uh, in the back area. And Liz clearly was a little apprehensive being in public. I later found out a lot of the reasons why. And I, sat, I, I said, do you have a place to sit here? Can I sit with you? 
And suddenly, she got someone that people generally sought out. Liz was about uh, 330 pounds at the time, uh, uh, limped around a lot, and uh, had some other things that kind of maybe people didn't, let me put this, people weren't running after her. But I found out Jesus Christ was always running after her or walking with her. Um, so I started talking to Liz, and she just opened up to her story with me, which is a pretty harrowing story. In the current ways, she loved God but felt so disconnected. And over the years, she took on an email. She even had an email address that was called Blessed Leper. Blessed Leper at something something.com. And uh, I, I hadn't even met Adrian yet. I met Adrian uh, in November. It's quite likely Adrian might have actually been at the show. I don't know. But um, I went back to school. I mean, I had a wonderful time. And I was just loved on by this person. And I wanted to encourage someone. I got to encourage her, but really I just received. So fast forward. Um, I started going to, coming to Vineyard and such. And Adrian and I happen. And it's glorious and stuff like that. And Adrian and I get married. And then I see Liz again. And, Liz, and I found out Liz babysat my wife when she was a baby. And has been part of my wife's life like forever. And we had a little one-room apartment above uh, where Magical Druid is right now, interestingly enough. And I'd, Liz would always be at the bus stop there taking a bus to home because she was unable to drive for uh, many reasons. And I'd get home from work and see her at the bus stop and just say, hey, need a ride? And we would go for rides. So I, every time she was at the sink with me, I would take her home, start to hear her story. And this is someone who'd been through trauma that I just can't even begin to tell in a area where young people are. And, but if you fill in your worst of your imagination, it might get close. And we're talking a lifetime of deep trauma and injuries. And also, you know, by the way, Liz is with Jesus right now, and she's not suffering. And one of the reasons I can say her name, because she has been completely healed, and she's in a state where she's not going to mind right now. So uh, Liz uh, died on December 15, 2015. And I was privileged to be able to do her service, but uh, most of us weren't able to be there, and now I can say some things about her. But it directly relates to something I want Central Vineyard to be able to enter into, all right? And has been in for a long time. And that is, uh, as I got to know Liz, I found out there was no one who prayed more. I hadn't met someone who prayed like her since, since my mom died. Because my mom would wake up like a couple hours early she wasn't a morning person, but she'd wake up a couple hours early and just pray for us every day, you know. And, uh, and Liz was someone else I saw despite mental illness, hardship, besetting diagnoses, and extraordinary physical pain, prayed for more people. That, uh, she prayed like as much or maybe more than my mom did, all right, because she was a shut-in most of the time. But uh, as I got to know Liz... Uh, and she got more integrated in life because we did church together and she had some things like she kept saying I, she had these ideas that I shouldn't go to church because I've done this, this, and this but she couldn't stay away from the vineyard because that was her family but really she carried Jesus in a way few did and uh, Liz uh, I found out over the years that she email was the greatest gift whoever gave her a computer Praise God, because she was, able to, she was able to interact with the world 
even when her mental illness was at its highest ebb with email. And I started finding out, like, before I even, like, we planned a church, she was writing emails to John McCollum because she found the Ages Hope Board. And John would sit here and spend 20 minutes, like, every other day, writing, like, the most loving response to her. And she, then she would... She would also have prophetic words. Like she would believe as she's praying that God wants to say something to you about encouraging you or warning you about some kind of danger or something. And it was like she was a mystic. Like she was one of these people you read about in medieval times who kept the flame of Christianity going when the leadership structures were corrupt. We read about all these horrible popes and leaders' crusades, but there were countless people like Liz who kept the fire of Jesus alive when the organizational church was misrepresenting it and then recording it. So, uh, I mean, I love seeing Rachel smiling there because you just, you know, we all, so many of us know Liz and known her for a long time. So, Adrian and I get married, and Liz came to our wedding, and we got all these presents, a lot of which we immediately turned around and sold, like, and eventually we're like, why do people get China, especially new China? It's at thrift stores for cheap. You know, so, so we tried to capitalize on everything. Um, we got one piece of water for Crystal, which we told everyone, no, it's a scam. It's just a scam, and it, your kids are going to break it anyway. So we broke it in advance as kind of do playing a joke with it. But Liz, we opened this package from Liz, and Liz had no money. She lived with government assistance, and she was perpetually broke. And we were, you know, people in the church were always giving her money just to make it, but she didn't have any, like, wiggle room. We opened this big box, and she had written, handwritten a book of blessings for us in our marriage. And she had written journaled prayers that she's been praying for us. And she fitted with Bible verses for different situations and stories. And gave us this book, like this book of, it was like an epistle, but it was a heck of a lot longer than 1 Corinthians or Romans. And she had labored, she had a hard time writing, so she had these big blocky letters. But it just, if, if you just felt Jesus on an object, you felt Jesus on this object. Then we, we popped out Ian pretty quickly. And when Ian, there was a baby shower. Or no, when Ian was born, uh, I, uh, she came by, or we, we saw her church. People would give her rides to church, and she had a package for Ian. And it was a big package. And once again, what did you do? We opened it up, and this is 94. This isn't like right now Homesteader. She had made every baby product you can conceive of by hand using all organic products and written out recipe cards on how to make everything for very cheap that have zero toxins for our son. And then she'd been praying for a couple weeks leading up to giving this to us where she asked the Lord to give her prayers to pray for my son, Ian. And she had a, thought, a lot of insights who you, she thought Ian would be in Jesus, all of which are true. And we got this basically that she was praying for, I don't know really anyone more than us, or maybe sometimes more than us, because we were just too tired, who stood in the gap and prayed for my son, even when he was in the womb. That's Liz. Uh, Liz uh, was schizophrenic. She heard voices, either a little, a few voices or loud voices. And these voices told her the most terrifying things. Uh, she came by it through trauma, both in her home, and then in public places and endured severe violence. And I, I can't even begin to, I can't describe this to you. And stuff. 
And that made whatever proclivity this mental illness get worse. She was, I believe she was the focus of all kinds of spiritual and physical and biochemical attack. So she marinated in listening to worship, leading, hanging out, writing letters to followers of Jesus, reading scripture, and she would work to drown out the voices that were telling her to hurt herself or telling her fear. She would drown it out with Jesus loves me, this I know. And it kept her alive. Um, I remember uh, she was in a therapy course at Harding Hospital. And I was at the Laughing Ogre looking through, uh, I was at the Laughing Ogre comic shop looking through graphic novels with the Justice Society of America. This guy was looking through them too and said, hey, what do you do? And he goes, oh, I, I work, I do, I do uh, uh, mental health counseling at Harding Hospital regarding X, Y, and Z. And I said, oh, you must know my best buddy, Liz. And he's like, I can't tell you. And I talked to Liz, and Liz has been, like, despite her illness, showing Jesus to this guy consistently over and over and over as he brought her special therapies to help her with her mental illness. And later I found out that there wasn't a single social worker, physician, or person at the bus that did not see the real picture of Jesus from Liz. Um, Liz came to our church shortly after we pastored when we were meeting. The first school we met at had these really difficult steps and these real, really narrow, like, wooden chairs. It was Crestview, which is now Indianola. She's like, I can't get down the steps and I can't fit in the chairs. And we didn't have streaming, but I'm going to pray for you. And just I'm going to email people in your church and be part of your church that way. We moved to another location where we were able to assist her down a few steps. We had people that would meet her. And then we were able to seat her in a way that was very comfortable. And she became like a fixture at Central Vineyard. And she told, she never hid her mental illness from people. It actually frightened some people. Because uh, it, um, it's, it's just really hard. You know, it's really hard to be in proximity to someone. But it's amazing how much I discovered Jesus in a way I wouldn't have known Jesus like I know Jesus now without having Liz in my life. So, um, this, uh, Liz, uh, lived in an apartment, uh, and, uh, her social worker knew many of us at the church, and, uh, Liz would never, uh, let anyone in her apartment. She wouldn't let us go in her apartment. Uh, we didn't quite know why, but we understood Liz has a lot of boundaries. Well, Liz could not pick things up off the floor, if, some, if she dropped something, she couldn't get down. Uh, Liz had animals. Um, she needed animals. I don't think she could have stayed alive without her dog. All right? God gave her that. Um, the social worker eventually was able to gain entry to her apartment and just immediately, like, started weeping and wailing, trying to be clinical, but couldn't stop crying. She reaches out to people in the church and says, uh, I'm going to work with Liz. We, wanna, we need to like, gut this place. There's concrete floors. Every piece of upholstery, every piece of furniture, everything needs to go out. We need people that can restore any photos or personal items or scan them in and reprint them. We need a whole team, but she needs a complete reboot. This will kill her if she's staying here. And... Uh, 
immediate, well, this wasn't a home group. We didn't like have a mental illness, home reboot ministry here. We didn't have like a, a handy person's ministry, but we did have home groups that said, you know, if anyone has need, let's do what we need to do to meet that need. It was all relationally done. And her home group rallied behind it, uh, pulled their money, got one of those giant dump contractor dumpsters. A couple of people went over and they said, and one person, uh, my friend Andy, ended up going there like for a few years every day to check up on her, actually. And they said, okay, we need respirators, we need some hazmat material, we need gloves, we need X amount of gallons of bleach, and we need to be able to... So uh, the whole home group went. Um, this... This is, by the way, this is a DNA of Central Vineyard story. Because I want to tell you, 90% of what happens at this church is relational. And we worship God, we worship God, we ruminate on scriptures, and we call all of us to experience his love and his presence until it leaks out. And I can't, recently struck me that I'm going to start doing a part of the service called Caught in the Act. And where I, can, so I or someone else can retell stories, changing certain details so we don't like uh, put anyone in an awkward position. But in effort, as A, an act of worship, B, to tell you who we are. Because we have like three ministries that we do corporately. We have systems and organized ministry to combat systems of evil, like persecution of the fatherless widow, namely the stranger. So you need to have a spirit-filled system to engage a systemic evil. But we have a Holy Spirit relationship where we don't need to have a system. We need to spend time with Jesus till we leak him out everywhere. And this is the story of Central Vineyard. 90% of it is these stories that you're not going to put a little documentary video on YouTube about. And I chose Liz's story because it involves so many of these secret stories that no one would know, right? There's no book written about Liz. And there, there's a video that's going to be on the internet for some time now, I guess, today. But um, they got to Liz's place and uh, they cranked up worship music and basically, if I recall right, I think a significant percentage of the people were weeping the entire time. Right, Carl? Um, they were literally, at times, they would have to go out to throw up because they found something. And they would be teared up and throw up and come back and clean the place. And then uh, go buy all new furniture. Then like put uh, the cement floor of the condo was the first floor deal. They put, like, what do you call that? Like... Um, uh, one of those catalytic epoxies that totally seals everything, makes it beautiful. Got her all new furniture, made everything handicapped accessible. It was, it, was, it was a lot harder than building a place from scratch. And we got Liz a place to stay and get cared for while we rebooted the place, while she was giving intensive psychiatric care and prayer ministry during that time, and she came back. But the people that cleaned that were like worshiping God, tears going down, feeling the presence of the Spirit. Because people, you know, there are some people that say, we want to we wanna have this rally at the stadium and welcome the Holy Spirit and worship Him and act, ask Him to fight all the evil in our nation. And then they name out specific things they think are evil. And some people feel the Holy Spirit, a lot of people don't. Some people feel guilty because they don't. A friend of mine, Pete Grieg, has written several books about prayer, and his credo is, if you want to feel the Holy Spirit, go to where he hangs out, and he hangs out with the poor and marginalized. 
If you want to experience the Holy Spirit, go to what the people Jesus always went to. And you're not going to be able to be the presence of Jesus without the Holy Spirit. So you kind of force the hand. And which is so much better than culture warfare stuff. It's like you, you want to do this warfare. Warfare is the fact there's voices that were telling Liz to kill herself for a couple decades. You engage warfare, you engage it with truth of scripture and prayer. And let me tell you, those prayers alleviated it. Those prayers helped her to die in a place of joy. And as the most flourishing her human body could be on this planet, she was experiencing the shalom of God. Um, so eventually, uh, Liz's illness got worse where she needed to be in a care facility um, because you needed a whole staff of people to be able to keep her. And she ended up, uh, we ended up holding a little service at this facility. Home group just decided to co-locate there because there's a lot of older folks there that couldn't get a worship service. And Liz basically became the missionary to her whole section. She knew everyone. She had written these big blocky prayers and she would send us emails saying, I'm praying for this person and this person and this person. And we would visit her. Uh, most consistently would have been like, well, three people I'm not going to mention, but God bless you. And this was one of those nursing homes that you go if you're completely broke. They were staffed like 10% what they needed. And it was, it was pretty rough. And Liz eventually went to be with Jesus. But she went worshiping and praying for this church in particular, the people who are here or not here. And her prayer was always, let the people that felt, like a le- felt they were lepers like me find a place of love. So, Liz, uh, I told a long story here because I believe every well-known story of people doing the work of Jesus had a bunch of Liz Riggs people that we don't know behind their story. The story behind the story. Because the Bible teaches, and the scripture says, the least of these is the most important in scripture. It's like this cosmic upside-down kingdom. There are people, there, there's a term actually, Christian influencers. And you read some people with me, he's a Christian influencer, and I've heard people use that phrase. And God bless them, some of them do really cool things. But behind every one of those people doing good things, there was mom or grandma or auntie or church that you'll never hear about. And listen, my hope is just like 90% of the good that happened at the initiation of the church was never written down, A, because they were too poor for scrolls. You know, like uh, the book of Galatians, I think, would be equivalent of $10,000 in writing materials today. And the church was broke because they, didn't, they weren't giving good jobs because of their faith. But they didn't ever complain about it, ironically. So the church, that church, um, we, we have snippets. But the way we know what they did is after the fact, people making just brief asides about how it started in the first century. Because they were too busy doing it instead of fronting. And I've said this, and some of the, I said, I rejoice in the idea that churches give birth to churches. Eventually churches, uh, is like, it's like a mommy church that has a lot of babies, and then mommy dies, but the genetics are carried on throughout that. Uh, John Wimber's, my favorite John Wimber story is he talked about a church funeral where there was this small, uh, there was this small Latino like church that sent out like eventually 20 churches and those 20 churches sent out churches and eventually the church gave birth to its last litter and mom had like four older people left because they always would give away their young people and they said the church is open. I said, okay, wait. 
So they rented a stadium, and some guy that Wimber was going to talk to about church growth with, it's just funny, he goes to this uh, stadium, and all these people are there, and what is going on? Because the guy kind of kept him in the dark about this. He goes, oh, we're having a church funeral. All these people are the fruit of the ministry of this little church that was faithful on this little corner that no one thought was anything. And pastors of big churches today, some very well-known ones would say, well, I can't be accountable to these people. They don't have a mega church. But these people said, this is our elder church that we go to for wisdom and nourishment. And they welcomed, they took the people who were in the church still there, and they all adopted them into a congregation that was going on. And I thought, you know, I don't know. Central Vineyard here for 30 years, 100 years, whatever. I don't know. In a way, churches keep rebirthing because there's a turnover of someone. As you send people out, new people come in. When do you tell, begin a story of a church anyway? I don't know. But the idea that we could be a part of something where we're lost to history, but all those micro-interactions of being present in the Spirit catalyze things that do change the world. And we're shareholders because where God is made famous and none of us are. Where God is made famous and none of us are. That ideas that can germinate here and other little tiny congregations can change the world. No one knows us. Now, what's hard for me is I get so depressed when I watch the news. Because it's not about those anonymous, the anonymous majority of nondescript Jesus followers filled with the Holy Spirit doing Jesus stuff. It's, it's the tiny little people that aggregate a lot of people and engage in coercive behavior that somehow engage in something under the guise of Christianity. And I'm like, well, that ain't... Well, Doug Buckley actually... Uh, he hasn't written a theological paper, but he, had, he has uh, created a response to all the things I see that discourage me. And it's a very succinct and well-worded. He said, that ain't Jesus. That ain't Jesus. And it's the best response at all. Like, how do you know that's true? I read the whole Bible. <laughs> you know, it's like, that ain't Jesus. So we're going to start something. I'm going to initially tell a couple bigger stories. But then in our worship, we're going to begin telling tiny little stories. We try to do this all the time so we can capture the church's oral history in an honoring way. Because I want to tell you, like... I've got crazy stories where people were... I, I, now, this is... I have one story. One story where someone came to me, hey, there's this person, they're in a desperate situation. They've, they've, uh, uh, they've moved into their, to our house, but there's some violence going on, other stuff. I said, well, what, I didn't know what the church is going to do about it. I said, well, what are you doing? And gave me a whole litany of all this stuff. And he said, but really, what's the church going to do? I said, well, is anyone in the home group you're in? Are they doing anything? Well, they're doing this, this, this. But I need to know what ministry does the church have to address this? I said, we don't have one. We have people filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, it would be a real shame to build some robust procedure manual and not listen to the Holy Spirit and be able to provide the best pivoting care possible. Now, that, that person just had a little kind of a narrow view, but it illustrates the kingdom of God comes even in chaos and mess because Jesus is not thwarted by messiness. He's thwarted by pridefulness and hubris. So, guys, um, if you catch someone in the act doing something Jesus-y, tell me. Let's have a lot of good Holy Spirit gossip behind people's backs. In fact, whenever I hear something awesome about someone, I tried to come up and said, oh man, I hope your ears might have been burned. Some people are talking behind your back. I said, really? 
said, yeah, we were just talking about how much like Jesus you are. I just want to tell you, you encourage me. So I try to reflect it back to whoever I hear. But guys, can we start a little like world-bidding storytelling and tell in a respectful way, tell stories? Because this is part of our liturgy. I want to ask the worship band to come up. I want us to stand. And guys, some of us... Some of us are, uh, some of us, there's a spectrum of how much of a mess you look like and how much together you look like. And let me tell you, outward appearance means Jack. Outward appearance means Jack. All right? In fact, you have far more suicides among the wealthy than the poor. All right? Far more suicides among those who have power versus the powerless. I want to do communion here. Kelly. St. Kelly. <laughs> Thank you, my dearest sister. I almost forgot, we're talking about being the hands and feet in Jesus, and Jesus gave us a way to physically honor that. Jesus uh, took a story of people being set through slavery and made it a story of him suffering. And the story was communion. It was about the Exodus, and it was when they celebrated Passover to celebrate being set free from slavery. And Jesus appropriated his own culture's story to give the whole world a way to remember that we would rather endure pain for the gospel than inflict pain for suffering. I would rather have a 3% risk of having an allergic reaction than having a 10% chance of getting someone sick. You know what I'm saying? Like anything like that, it's better to suffer than inflict suffering. And that's just communion. When we do Eucharist, we're pledging allegiance to the risen God. And here's why the resurrection is important. Not just Jesus, the moral teacher. The resurrection is important because it empowers us to say death is the worst thing. And it's not as bad as it used to be. Because Jesus rose. He's the first among the dead. So, body, blood of Jesus. Jesus says, do it in remembrance of me. Paul says, whenever it's mealtime, you should do this because we can't get too many reminders. So, Holy Spirit, come over these elements. Come over these people. Draw us in your presence. Amen.